All right, well, I am very excited to be back with you guys and uh, preaching from the book of Jonah. So the last two weeks, uh, Bert shared a couple weeks ago, and then Rob shared last week, and I got a chance to listen to those messages. And as I was listening to them, I'll be honest, I started to just kind of ask God, what are you up to with this book? What is it that you're wanting to stir and shape in us as a church? It's a challenging book to listen to, uh, to read, to try and understand and study. And today is no different. Chapter 3 just goes right at the heart of uh, how we can tend to disbelieve God, um, things that we might think wrongly about God, and it really wants to unsettle us. We see Jesus use Jonah to unsettle Israel when he teaches and Jonah is one of those books that just kind of shakes us up a bit and makes us think differently about how we understand God. So that's what we're going to be doing today, and I'm trusting God to continue to shape uh, a pretty deep story in our lives of walking with Him in faith. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Jonah chapter 3. We're going to be in the whole chapter of Jonah today, uh, chapter 3. And I want to tell you that big idea of the chapter, and I think it's the big idea of the whole book of Jonah, is that God is slow to anger and quick to compassion. And we're going to see that on display in Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that today, that God is slow to anger and quick to compassion. So Jonah chapter 3, 10 verses, here we go. Says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. All right, as we explore Jonah 3, we're going to ask ourselves three questions, and these questions are going to guide us through our time today. The first one, why is Jonah in the Bible? The more I study this book, the more I keep coming back to this question, why is this in the Bible? And answering that will help us understand a lot of how to interpret and understand and apply Jonah. The second question is, who is the main character? It's kind of a two-parter. What are we supposed to do with that? And number three, what do we do with Nineveh's repentance? It's kind of a, an interesting storyline. It's kind of a unique moment in history, and we'll have to wrestle with that a little bit. So the first question that we're going to look at is, why is Jonah in the Bible? 
As we read through this, the, uh, the picture that we get of Israel is a prophet named Jonah that's stubborn and grumpy and is not happy at all with his assignment. He's semi-obedient. He just doesn't really seem like a good representation of Israel. But keep in mind, the book of Jonah was written for the nation of Israel and for Christians since Jesus. That's who Jonah was written for. This book was not being published and sent to Assyria or sent around the Babylonian Empire a few hundred years later or sent around the Roman Empire. It just wasn't for them. It was for Israel and for Christians. And so you look at it and just think, okay, why is this here? From a human perspective, there's really no hero of the story. Yet we've been studying it for 2,000, give or take 700 years And it's a challenging book to understand. When we look at the book, we have to understand that Jonah is here to show us one thing. It's here to show us the depth and the breadth of God's grace and mercy. And that's on full display in chapter 3. See, Nineveh's evil is all time. Again, we, we have a hard time thinking about this, but Assyria is widely known as the most brutal evil empire of all time. And God calls on his prophet to go into the heart of that empire and to call out against it. The options are for Jonah to die or for them to respond. It's a pretty crazy thing to think of how evil and challenging this nation is. And so Israel reading this, when they see that God told Jonah to go to Assyria, to go to Nineveh, they would actually have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. God, they are our enemies. They have the power to destroy us. They're evil. They're wicked. Why would you send Jonah to these people? In his book, uh, Scandalous Grace, Preston Sprinkle writes this. He says, but what happened in April 1994 was even more shocking than Dahmer's depravity. This is about Jeffrey Dahmer. While in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer gave a television interview. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, for those that don't know, a serial killer from the 90s, did some terrible things. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer gave a television interview and mentioned in passing that he wished he could find some inner peace. A Christian woman named Mary Mott saw the interview and thought, I know where you can find inner peace. So she mailed several Bible studies to Dahmer. After receiving them, Dahmer immediately read them all and wrote Mary Mott back asking for more. So she sent more. Shortly after, Mott contacted Roy Ratcliffe, a minister who lived near the prison, and asked him to visit Dahmer to share the gospel with him. Ratcliffe nervously agreed. He visited Dahmer, told him the good news about Jesus, answered some questions, studied the Bible with him, and eventually saw God's grace flood Dahmer's dark soul with life. Dahmer accepted Jesus as Savior and King, a deranged cannibal rearranged by grace. Dahmer's blood-stained hands were washed clean with the blood of the Lamb. All the acts of murder, pedophilia, necrophilia, and cannibalism were thrust down to the bottom of the sea, no longer to have a voice in God's courtroom. Seven months later, Dahmer was killed by an inmate with a broomstick, and now, as far as we know, he's still celebrating his redemption with Jesus in heaven. Grace, however, was unwelcome when it invaded Portage, Wisconsin. Many people were cynical, doubtful, even angry, like the Old Testament prophet Jonah over Dahmer's religious experience in prison. 
Roy Ratcliffe recalls with discouragement that many people he talked to doubted Dahmer's conversion, and most of these doubters were Christians. They asked if Jeff was truly sincere in his desire for baptism and in his Christian life. My answer is always the same. Yes, I am convinced he was sincere. Ratcliffe is grieved. Why question the sincerity of another person's faith? If a person confesses Christ and yet fails to demonstrate any evidence that the confession was genuine, then there's room to doubt. But the cynicism lobbed at Dahmer's conversion did not focus on his post-conversion life, whether there was evidence of faith, but the evil he committed before he came to Christ. Jeff was not judged by his faith, but by his crimes. According to Ratcliffe, these Christian cynics believe that some crimes are too vile, too twisted, too unspeakable to be forgiven. We believe in grace, but we've got to draw the line somewhere. We've got to put a leash on grace before it runs free and breaks out of our gated community. You see this story of Jeffrey Dahmer being shown the grace of God, and it, it's internally challenging. For Americans that lived through the terrors of what he did in the 90s, it, was, it would be unsettling to think of somehow God's grace reaching this depraved man and maybe even cause some anger. And that's the reaction that Israel would have had if they read about Assyria, Nineveh, being shown God's grace. Jonah is in the Bible to put on full display the truth of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So why is Jonah in the Bible? Jonah is in the Bible to show us God's character. God's character was dictated to us in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And the rest of the Bible, including Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection, are there to show us God's character and his heart to bring people back to himself. So that leads us to the second question. Who is the main character of Jonah? Now, I hope at this point it's obvious that the main character is not Jonah, because if the main character was Jonah, then the message of Jonah would be, you better obey, and if you don't, you're going to get swallowed up by a fish, you're going to get some kind of retribution until God forces you into obedience, and then all will be right in the world. That would be the message of Jonah if Jonah was the main character, and that is not the message of Jonah. Now, we can glean things from Jonah. Look, the main character is not even Nineveh, and today we're going to glean things from Nineveh. The main character of Jonah is God and his relentless grace. So we're going to walk through chapter 3 and understand the depths and the breadth of God's relentless grace today. So if you have your Bibles, let's go back through these. All right, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah is an exact mirror in the Hebrew, word for word, with chapter 1, verse 1. So if you go back to Jonah 1, 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, chapter 3, verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It's like a restart. All right, first time didn't work, now let's kick back into gear and let's do this again. And so the word of the Lord came to Jonah 
saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So this is what God is doing. God has no covenant obligation to Nineveh at all. God would be perfectly righteous in continuing to walk with Israel in his covenant relationship with them and leaving all of these other nations to their destruction, to their unbelievably wicked ways. He has no covenant obligation to go to them. And also, there's no reason to condemn them. They're already condemned. The interesting thing, Jesus says, uh, our favorite verse is John 3.16, but if you keep reading John 3.17, Jesus says, or it says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, or in order that the world might be saved through him. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. When he comes here, he's not just saying, you're evil, and you're evil, and you're evil, and you're all going to hell. That's not Jesus' message. That was already the state of the world. So that wasn't his purpose for coming. His purpose for coming was that the world might be saved through him. So it's, it's actually a rescue operation, not one to just tell us how broken we actually are. But when God enters a situation, it does confront us with our evil and our brokenness. And that's actually a sign of God's love. Being confronted with the evil in your own life is a demonstration of God's love. An author that we've referenced a number of times named Tim Mackey, the founder of the Bible Project, he puts it this way, talking about God's love and judgment. He says, all right, we're all adults in the room. So I think for the sake of argument, let's just say we're all adults in the room. And you're walking by and there's a, a, a schoolyard group of bullies that are just taking out, a, uh, you know, sixth graders taking out a second grader. And uh, they're just shoving this kid and taking his backpack and dumping it out, maybe throwing some punches, just, just terrorizing this second-year-old kid. And he said, you're walking by this as an adult. You've got some choices to make. Do you just keep on walking by and say, ah, oh, kids will be kids? Or is there a different action that takes place? And he says that any action that you would take to intervene is rendering judgment. That what those kids are doing is wrong, and that as an act of love, you would intervene into that moment of bullying, and it actually would be an act of love for the bullies and an act of love for the bullied. To actually show the bullies that what they're doing is evil and treacherous and wrong is an act of love, giving them the opportunity to find a different path in life and to show that mercy and compassion to intervene and stop the injustice for the bullied, that is also an act of love, but it requires judgment, confronting the world with its evil. So any time that God presents us with the evil of our own heart, it's not to destroy us, it's actually to invite us into a different way, a different path. God's judgment is an act of love. It's hard to even wrap our heads around that. In fact, Tim Mackey even says the opposite of love is not judgment. The opposite of love is apathy. To just keep on walking by the bullies without doing anything is the opposite of love. Judgment is actually an act of love to show us how we truly need what God has to offer. So God calls on Jonah to go to Nineveh and to call out against them the evil that they're doing. Think about that for just a moment. Just, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them how evil they're being. What good is that going to do anybody? And he just says, do it. 
I want you to go and tell them how evil they're being. So Jonah decides to go. It says, Jonah arose, verse 3. Now, just keep in mind the context. It says, Jonah arose. He arose from having been vomited onto the beach by a fish. So he was laying there. I imagine there was some slime of some kind on him. And he gets up, he arose, and he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, the author uh, gets a little cheeky here, and I'll just tell you about this. He says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, he's not necessarily saying that's the exact dimensions of Nineveh. The author is trying to show you Nineveh was a massive city, and the way to tell you that was like days, right? It was huge. And then he says this, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. So he's trying to show you Jonah just kind of like dipped his toe in and then called out a quick word and then bolted. Jonah was not in this to fully and completely commit to obedience. In fact, some scholars that look at this call it prophetic sabotage, that his objective was to tell the absolute bare minimum of the message to technically comply with what God had said, but he had zero desire for Nineveh to experience God's grace. He had zero desire. In fact, we see that in chapter 4. Next week we'll see it. Jonah gets angry at God. He gets actually angry at God for showing any kind of grace towards Nineveh because of how wicked and evil these people are. And so Jonah does not want them to repent. So he does this. Jonah barely goes into the city and then he calls out a message. He didn't go to anybody important. He didn't go to the king. He didn't go to their temples. He didn't go to their public discourse places. It says he began to go into the city and he called out. And in Hebrew, the message that he preaches is five Hebrew words. Translates to a little more in English. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No mention of God, no mention of wrath, no mention of how they're going to be overthrown, no mention of an invitation to repentance, no message of how to not be overthrown. He tells them nothing. Now the scholar's question is, is this what God told him to say? Or was there a bigger message that Jonah did not fully divulge to the people of Nineveh? We don't know. But we can tell from the way that the author is presenting this that Jonah does the bare minimum, like nothing. Begins to go in, says, 40 days and you're done, and he leaves. That's the message. Now, I want you to look at the response. And again, this is the author showing you Jonah doing the bare minimum and listen to the response of Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh believed God. I mean, just that sentence alone, Nineveh's like 40 days and you'll be overthrown. And they're like, what, God? They believe God and they hear his voice. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. There is a grassroots repentance movement. The people of Nineveh hear this message and they say, everybody stop what you're doing, put on sackcloth, start fasting. And then the word gets to the king. Not because Jonah preached to the king, but because the people started rumbling and talking and moving and doing something. And this word rises to the king and the king hears it. And this is what it says about the king. 
says he arose from his throne. So just again, language is important. He's seated on a throne. That's a sign of authority. He arose from his throne. He's wearing a robe. That's a sign of authority. He takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth. That's a sign of mourning, grieving, repentance. And then he sits in ashes. That's a sign of submission. Just like in the dust, in the ash. This king, full display. I'm off my throne. My robe is off. My sackcloth is on. And I am in the ashes. This king is going from the highest most important position in the world. You know, right now, the the president of the United States is, is called the leader of the free world and has been for probably about the last 50 years. The leader of the free world, typically considered the most important person on planet Earth or most powerful. That would have been the king of Nineveh, the leader of the not free world. It was the biggest empire. They had all the land and all the military might. And this was the king of that nation. And he rises up off of his throne and takes off his robe, covers himself in sackcloth and sits in ashes saying, everybody get as low as you can. He says, I want all of you wearing sackcloth. I want our animals wearing sackcloth. Nobody's going to taste food. Nobody's going to drink water. I don't want our animals eating food or our animals drinking water because he then says this, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. All this from Jonah saying, 40 days and you're done. And the king's like, okay, God. Maybe, maybe this God will be compassionate. Maybe he won't overthrow us. Then verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, here's how we know that Nineveh is not the main character of this story. It's it's not Jonah. It's not Nineveh either, because according to history, they continued to do evil, and probably 80 to 100 years after this moment, uh, Nineveh was completely overthrown by Babylon, 612 BC, Babylon rolls through, takes on the Babylonian Empire, becomes the new world superpower, Assyria retires, it's, how many of you took Western Civ? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like this stuff, they're gone, Assyria's gone. And Babylon takes over. And by the time Jonah was written, or at least for most of the history of Israel reading the book of Jonah, they know that Assyria is off the face of the planet. They're not looking at this thinking that there was some revival in Assyria and these people have started a a temple to the Lord and there's synagogues all over the place and they're worshiping Yahweh and memorizing the scriptures and kids going through Hebrew school. That's not the case. The point of the story, it is to show Nineveh's response in contrast to Jonah's heart. And the author is just like, look where we're at. And it's supposed to shake us up. The story of Jonah is here to shake us up. And we know this because of how Jesus uses the story of Jonah. Go to Luke chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, it's worth turning. Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches the story of Jonah. So he grabs this 
story and he uses it to the stubborn Pharisees. In fact, just to give you an idea, a little bit later in Luke, just like this many verses later, he goes and starts talking about how the Pharisees are whitewashed tombs, like all the things about the Pharisees being hypocrites. He gets to that through the story of Jonah. And this is what he says using Jonah. Verse 29, chapter 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. He's talking to Israel, remember. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. All right, okay, Jesus, what are you talking about here? For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, some people are like, oh, the fish was the sign. The fish wasn't the sign. Jonah didn't tell the people of Nineveh, hey, guys, I just got vomited out of a fish 40 days and you're done. He did not indicate to them that he had just been in the belly of a fish. That's not the sign. The sign is Jonah going into the belly of the beast and proclaiming, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is the sign that Jesus is referencing. Okay, skip down to verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Okay, this is where we're starting to get an idea of how do we understand the book of Jonah. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So Nineveh gets this minimal message and they respond in the most biggest way imaginable. Every single human being in Nineveh, covered in sackcloth and ashes, fasting, hoping that God would relent, and he does. They experience the grace and mercy and compassion of God, even if it's just for a moment. They, relented, they responded and repented, and God relented of the disaster that he was going to send on them. And Jesus says, look, that generation is going to rise up and judge this generation. You are a more evil generation than Nineveh. Now, this is a pretty brutal thing that Jesus says. And this is kind of going to lead us into the last question of what do we do with Nineveh's repentance? Because Jesus pointed to their repentance. And then he tells them something greater than Jonah is here. Chapter 11, verse 32, Jesus is like, just like Jonah went into Nineveh and proclaimed, something greater than Jonah is here, and you all have to wrestle with what to do with that. How are you going to respond? And so now we have to process through, just for a moment, what do we do with Nineveh's repentance? I want to share a couple of things with you that I think are pretty important. The first thing is this. Jonah represents a stubborn and hardened Israel. They have God's blessing, but they don't want to share God's blessing with the world. Jonah looked at Nineveh and said, they're too far gone. They're too evil. They do not deserve your grace. I don't know how you grew up. I'll tell you a little bit about how I grew up. Uh, so my parents, Steve and Connie Larson, moved from Orange County to Newbury Park, California in 1979 for the purpose of starting a church. So they came here this, June 17th, 1979 was the first church service of the Evangelical Free Church of the Caneo Valley. I was born three days later. 
June 20th, 1979. So when I say I grew up in the church, I grew up in the church. Like everything about my life was Jesus and as the deer pants for the water and all of the things of the 70s and 80s and 90s church life. And I loved it. I loved Jesus. I don't have a lot of life before I gave my life to Jesus where I look back on and think, oh yeah, I was a, I was a wretched, wicked, evil sinner. So one of the great lies that Satan has told me over the course of my life is this. Hey, you were a pretty good person. You were a pretty good person. In fact, you were almost there. But you needed Jesus. You know, it's like I was climbing over a wall to salvation and I was almost there. I had one leg up and I just couldn't get over the wall. And Jesus came and just like, you know, kind of hoisted me up on the wall. And I'm like, hey, thanks for the assist, Jesus. I almost had it. I was so close to salvation and I just needed that final nudge to just get over the hump and, and praise Jesus, I am saved. But oh, I was so close on my own. And what happens in situations like mine is when our need for Jesus is small, the cross becomes very small. The gap that was needed to get me from my brokenness, which was not that broken. I didn't cuss, never slept around, didn't drink, didn't do any of the things that bad high schoolers do. I did all the things that good high schoolers do. And I just needed, I just needed Jesus to just kind of like, nudge me over the top. And so that makes, my, that makes my faith really small, makes the cross really small, and ultimately, it makes my heart for the lost really small. But I want to take you to a couple of passages that teach us that this is a lie from Satan, that the gap that was needed to get you from where you were to where Jesus can save you, being small, that that is a lie from Satan. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says this. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived, this is Paul talking, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. My whole being before Jesus Christ invaded my life was that I followed Satan, I carried out the passions of my flesh. I was a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. I was an enemy of God. Those are true realities of my state of being prior to giving my life to Jesus. And if I don't understand that, then something goes wrong in my faith today. And we'll get to that. Here's the next one. This is 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, he says that lead-in phrase seven different times in the different letters that he writes. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then he goes into a saying. And this one's an interesting one. He says this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Okay, 
So you can do two things with this passage. Thing number one is divide up these two things. The trustworthy saying is Jesus Christ came in to save sinners, into this world to save sinners, and then Paul makes commentary on it and says, of whom I'm the worst. Now here's what I want to just ponder for a moment. Does Paul, filled by the Spirit, genuinely believe that he was the literal worst sinner to ever walk the face of the planet? Worse than Antiochus Epiphanes, who walked into the holiest of holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar to just point at Israel and say, your God is worthless. He can't stop me from doing this at all. Or Alexander the Great, who would terrorize everywhere he went and just murder people. Or even all the way back to Assyria and the king of Nineveh and these people that enjoyed, enjoyed the worst kind of terror that you could inflict on a human being was Paul looking at all of these people throughout human history and saying, oh no, I take the cake. Or, option number two, the trustworthy saying is, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And Paul was teaching Timothy to say that whole saying. Look, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. I needed salvation more than anyone else. There is not a soul on this planet that needed the grace of God more than I do. And Adam can say the same thing, and Jeremy can say the same thing, and Bliss can say the same thing, and we all adopt that same attitude that I needed Jesus' grace more than anyone. I'd like to propose that that's the interpretation based on verse 16. Paul says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, see, he's saying it changes my whole perspective, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, there's a little problem. If we, if we do the first thing, where we just kind of think of ourselves as generally fine, we just needed Jesus to kind of get us over the wall, just to give us that final push so that we could get saved. If we believe that, then what happens is our sense of mission gets very small. And something kind of changes in us. Because then we start looking at the world and saying, yeah, it actually is really evil out there. There's some broken people out there. I don't know that God can save all of them. They are awful. Look at all the horrible things that they're doing out there in the world. They are wretched, wretched people. Maybe God could get them. And we start to think of God being able to do great work with people that did most of the work themselves, like me, and we just needed a little shove to get the rest of the way. Or we adopt Paul's statement that says, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, and I'm the chief of them. What changes, and what changed in Paul, 
is then you go out into this world and you say to literally anyone on planet earth, do you realize that God saved me? If he can save me, he can save anybody on planet earth. You have no idea what God can do after he took care of this mess. He came into my life and he changed me. Like a lightning bolt, I had nothing to offer. And God showed his grace and his mercy, and he lavished, he chose me, and he lavished me with mercy, and he said, I want you, and he turned my life around. He can do that with you. He can do that with anybody on planet Earth. He could do that with Jeffrey Dahmer. He could do that with anybody, because he did it with the foremost sinner on planet Earth. It changes your whole mission strategy if you're the worst sinner that ever walked the face of the earth. When we read Jonah, sometimes we can look at it through the lens of us being Jonah, like we get a little bit resistant to God when he wants us to do something, and that's fine. But the storyline of Jonah is not that you're Jonah and a little bit resistant. You can glean some stuff from that, and we will next week. The storyline of Jonah is that you're Nineveh and I'm Nineveh. Arise, Jonah, and go to the belly of the beast and preach against the evil of Matt Larson. Go. That's what I needed. And that's what you needed. That God would confront you with your brokenness and invite you to experience his grace. Uh, We're a church that takes communion every week. And we have these elements of communion. And I I don't know how it is for you in a church that takes communion every week. You know, it's like, pastor's up there and he says the things, and then everybody stands up and we start singing. Nobody goes first song, second song hits, and okay, communion time. And you come up and you grab the cracker and you dip the juice and then you go in the circle. Somebody prays, you can't hear it, but that's okay. Or just trust that the Lord is being communed with at this moment. You wait until you see somebody else put it in their mouth and you're like, okay, and you take communion and then you're back to your seat for worship. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Um, what can happen is when we do this every week, we can kind of find ourselves in a rhythm of it's just a thing that we do. And honestly, it's just it's a matzah cracker and some grape juice. Like the, it, doesn't, it doesn't really elicit much. But here's, here's why we do communion, and this is something that's really important for you to grab a hold of. This is communicating to each and every one of us in this room that when Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given up for you, What he was saying is that you have no hope of salvation apart from my body being given up for you. And they wouldn't have wrapped their heads around that. They hadn't witnessed Jesus being crucified until about 36 hours later when they see his physical body hanging on a cross. And they're looking at that and realizing Jesus' body was given up for them. His physical, literal being was crucified. And Jesus said, this is my body given up for you. You do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember 
what it took to get you into eternity. That's not a little nudge over the wall. That's that you needed the body of Jesus to die on a cross to be reconciled to the Father. And then he takes the cup. He takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That without Jesus' blood being spilled, there would be no forgiveness of your sins. He literally, physically had to die and his blood to be poured out for the wrath of God towards your sin to be satisfied. That's the, the profound nature of the gospel is that you weren't almost there. You weren't even close. You were a million miles from the holiness of God. And Jesus Christ said, that's not the end of the story. My body given up for you, my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, and then something happens. You go from being enemies of God, sons of disobedience, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Those were the markers of you before you were a Christian, and then... Anyone that's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then we're called heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of the King, saved, redeemed, holy and blameless. The gospel takes Nineveh in all its wickedness and it turns it into the judges of the current generation. That's the profound nature. That's Jonah chapter 3 to Luke chapter 11. What changed? Jesus is looking at it and he's saying, look, Nineveh is going to stand in judgment of this generation because they repented. They heard the word of God and their hearts were turned to him. And he's using this as a picture to help us understand you don't have it. You never did. But when you're in Christ, you have it all. And it wasn't anything you did. It's not because you were Israel. It's not because you were a prophet. It's not because you semi-sort of grumpily obeyed God. It was none of that. It was Nineveh, the wicked nation that God came into and said, come with me. That's your story. That's why we take communion every single week. Because if we don't remember this, if we don't remember what it took to get us into heaven, like Paul, our hearts for people that don't know Jesus are going to be pretty small. Yeah, maybe God will save them. Maybe he can get to them. I don't know. They're pretty far gone. That's not the attitude of somebody that's been saved by grace. It's not, honestly, the attitude of somebody that knows what they've been saved from. And so what happens is if you're Sin was small, your cross is small, your faith is small, your mission is small, your life is small. But there's a, a picture in a book called The Doctrine of Repentance that I've seen, and it has this little, like, you know, what is that called? All right, you got it. 
And it basically says, as our understanding and recognition of our own sin grows, our understanding and recognition of the grace of God increases and it makes that cross huge. What it took to get us from our wickedness to the grace of God, that cross grows substantial and significant and with it, our gratitude, our worship, our obedience, our faithfulness, our mission, our purpose increases as we understand what we truly were saved from. So Jonah is in the Bible to show you You're Nineveh, and he's God, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And with that, we we just just soak in the goodness and grace of God, and then we, we take that to people and say, if God could save me, he can save anybody. And we bring that message to the world. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in Jonah. Thank you for the opportunity to hear your voice, Lord. I pray that there would just be a a deepening, maybe even a rumbling of faith rolling around the room, inviting us to just step into this bigger story of acknowledging how desperate we are for you. Lord, I pray that as we take communion today and we take those elements in our hands, we celebrate your finished work, Lord, would you... Give us that moment of understanding just how wicked and far gone we were and how profound and real your body and blood are and now what that makes us today, what that says about us, what you speak over us because of your finished work. Lord, would all of those thoughts cause us to be worshipers, people of thanksgiving, people who cannot stop proclaiming the goodness and grace of our God. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Amen.